Thank you, thank you for coming. Um, so yes, um, I'm Chagit, and I'm a researcher and an activist in uh, Israel-Palestine. And uh, I want to share with you some of my work, uh, which broadly falls into what I like to call prototyping um, a civic view from above. I promise to unpack and explain this title here with you by exploring three types of aerial tools and testimonies um, and the forms of truth-making they allow to create. Balloons and kites, satellite imagery, and drones. So the idea of a civic, collective, decentralized view from above relates to the rapid democratization of geospatial technologies that we are witnessing in the past two decades. Um, technologies such as satellite imagery, ge geographic information systems, GPS, drones, uh, that were originally developed for military purposes and uh, now has been, I mean, in the past two decades, been released for commercial and civic uses. But as I will show, the need for imagining a civic view from above uh, actually emerges from the many contradictions and fictions of technological democratization. Because despite all of these techno-scientific developments, the skies above our heads are a technology of control that is managed and controlled by corporations and governments. The question that hovers above uh, this talk is, who owns the skies? It is not a new question, but a persistent one. From the invention of the hot air balloons in the 18th century um, to the rapid dissemination of commercial drones in the 21st century, any attempt to give, to give it a definitive answer has been challenged by changing technologies, techniques, perceptions, and norms. And when we talk about the skies, we're also talking about openness, the inherent openness of the skies. So there is these tensions between, on the one hand, the sky as a technology of control, and on the other hand, an open space uh, for experimentation and resistance. And the work I uh, want to present here today explores these, these tensions by experimenting uh, with do-it-yourself practices for creating aerial testimonies in context of human rights violations. In the last part of my talk, I will take you to a tour of Jerusalem's wall, uh, an invisible wall that can only be made seen through the eyes of a drone. But before talking about my own work, um, I want to start uh, with other people's work. Because prototyping the civic view from above is not an individual project, but a broad and decentralized endeavor that happens in many places in parallel by utilizing tools, techniques, and inventions that reconfigure our norms and practices regarding the aerial space. And I want to start with Gaza. 
uh, a Palestinian city under siege. The Israeli blockade seals it uh, from the land and the sea through uh, no-go buffer zones and no-fly zones from the air. And has, the, the siege has uh, entered his, its 12th year, uh, intensifying poverty and despair in the population uh, in which every uh, two people out of three are refugees. So, in March 30th, 2018, um, a bit more than a year ago, mass protests began in Gaza uh, and still ongoing. It's, the protests are along the buffer zone that separates it from Israel. And more than uh, 200 Palestinians were killed until now, and in the past week, things have uh, completely escalated. And during, during these months, um, a tactic the protester deployed was an extensive use of kites. Kites and balloons were long used in Gaza um, to challenge the siege by, by sending cameras to the air or just flying hundreds of kites to reclaim the skies, the air, the space for life. But last year, as the popular protests culminated, kites were turned into weapons uh, by attaching to them incendiary materials. So hundreds of incendiary kites were sent every week during a few months in the spring and, and summer of 2018. And the many kites were prepared by um, volunteers who contributed their skill and know-how uh, for crafting strong and reliable army of kites out of scratch. It was through an improvised aerial vehicle that they managed to bypass the no-fly zone and no-go no buffer zones. The kite acted as a sort of a proxy for their own bodies that are monitored and watched over by highly technologized aerial and on-the-ground forms of surveillance. The kite brigade, as they are called in Gaza, were successful in creating a burning issue that kept burning for a few months into the summer. The flood of kites uh, in the air managed to destabilize Israeli strategies of defense, confuse its leaders and generals, and made the Israeli government um, spend a few million shekels to beat the kite attack uh, and get, get control over the, the fires that erupted in agricultural lands on the Israeli side of the border. I want to suggest here that you see these kites as a particular form of an aerial testimony that not only awakens us to the burning issue of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the Palestinian refugees, but also tells us a story of a techno-political battlefield that takes shape in Gaza. This testimony talked back to an oppressive regime. It challenged the definitive Israeli answer to the question of who owns the skies in Gaza. It did that through the simple gesture of flying a kite um, and against all odds in highly technologized skies uh, that are controlled by military drones, aircrafts, remote sensing applications and anti-missiles. The kite reminds us that the power structures and forms of domination that are embedded in technology itself, in the condition that define how technology is developed, by whom, for whom, and for what purposes. To fully understand that, we need to see the Kite Brigade as part of a much broader phenomenon. 
as part of a global movement of people who make use of such simple techniques, community-based tools and methods for talking back to power. So Gaza might be an extreme example, but a similar approach was taken by a group of activists, technologists and local residents um, during the no-fly zone that was declared above the British petroleum oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. The no-fly zone that was declared above the area caused a media blackout during the critical phases of the biggest disaster of the oil industry in the U.S. And this group managed to bypass these restrictions over the aerial space by producing high-quality aerial photography from fishing boats using kites, balloons, and a very simple do-it-yourself instrument for tethering a camera to um, a kite, and uh, the camera is, is pointed vertically to the ground. This is the hardware they used, a piece of what is termed as open hardware for community science uh, purposes. It's made out of recycled materials and off-the-shelf technologies, as you can see, a plastic bottle and um, a simple digital camera, a few rubber bands and a string. No need for geeky remote controls for controlling the camera while it is in the air. A simple knot on a string that is pressed against the shutter button keeps it, keeps it pressed and the, and the camera is taking photos in intervals of less, to, less than a second as it is on continuous mode. They also developed an easy-to-use and open-source software um, that enabled to create georectified images of large areas by manually warping individual images for lens correction and stitching them together to create images of large areas. In the aftermath of the British Petroleum oil spill, this group became a non-profit and an open-source organization called the Public Laboratory for Open Technology and Science, or for short, Public Lab, which advances community science approach by developing and applying tools and methods for environmental health and justice investigations. In almost a decade uh, since this uh, toolkit was developed and first used, hundreds of aerial maps were created around the world. I'm showing here a few examples for getting a feel of the diversity of issues um, that motivated people to create do-it-yourself aerial photography that include documenting uh, remote sites and settlements, giving visibility to marginalized communities that are off the map, mon <clears throat> monitoring landfills, uh, mapping environmental risks, using it as a tool for participatory planning, or as an educational resource, or documenting protests. But also, I'm, I'm showing these images to get to know, so you get to know the particular aesthetics of these images, which in contrast to the totalizing, seamless and cloudless earth images we are used to see, these manifest a partial, fragmented and local views from above and show evidence not only to what is seen in the image, but also to the human hand and eye that was involved in their production. So, you're probably asking yourselves, why balloons and kites when they're drones? And to follow with the Republica motto, too long didn't read, we can rephrase and ask, 
why go through the effort of doing it yourself when you have we can when you can buy off the shelf technologies such as commercial drones or satellite imagery that provides faster accurate result with much sophisticated equipment and besides isn't that a bit old you may ask um, it's true I mean techniques for exploring the aerial space with kites and balloons are not new and they trace back to the 19th century geeks Uh, that managed to create the first uh, aerial photographs by mounting and triggering cameras and that are tethered to kites, balloons and pigeons. But the use of kites and balloons for addressing social, political and environmental issues in places that, as diverse as Gaza, the US, Uganda, Brazil, South Lebanon and other places, tell us that these simple techniques are far from, from being uh, technologies of the past that has been replaced by new advancement and development. And the question is why? Why do these practices and techniques persist to play a role in our present? So let's briefly look at three contemporary examples of aerial information technology that has been adopted In the fields of humanitarian aid and human rights activism to figure out what's to gain and what is missing in these forms of truth-making. A prominent example is the Kenya-based crowdsourcing platform for uh, mapping live reports of violence and crisis called Ushahidi, which translates to testimony in Swahili. The Ushahidi um, technology of witnessing takes part in a broader field of uh, digital crisis mapping. It is an aggregate of information considered to be verified and reliable, which is sent by eyewitnesses or victims, usually uh, using a simple text message. And the report is then geotagged by a remote uh, team that categorizes incidents and places the information on an online map. <clears throat> These are two examples from the Haiti earthquake in 2010 and a more recent one from the war in Syria. Another aerial technology used for human rights campaigns in, is satellite imagery. And while satellite imagery has been used uh, since the 1970s by the leading and largest um, human rights organizations such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, The internet enabled to accelerate the circulation and dissemination of such testimonies and open opportunities to create new forms of evidence and new ways of witnessing in faraway and closed territories. A recent example is Amnesty's Decoders project in which thousands of online volunteers are invited to analyze satellite imagery to various conflicts around the world. In their Decode <clears throat> Darfur project, online volunteers identify evidence of homes and schools in Darfur that were destroyed. And another example is Amnesty's investigations around um, civilian casualties related to U.S. bombings, U.S.-led bombings in Syria. In their, web, in their website, Amnesty reveals that they are also working on a machine learning project that would enable to analyze whole territories based on the information that was collected by tens, and th tens of thousands of volunteers. Among, <clears throat> among these forms of uh, aerial testimonies uh, in humanitarian aid and human rights activism, there are also commercial drones 
that are developed and deployed for all kinds of missions, including mapping, assessment of damages in disaster areas, and monitoring changes in places such as refugee camps. So these three examples of geospatial technolo technologies in the service of humanitarian aid are important and no doubt groundbreaking in producing information and disseminating testimonies from faraway crises. But the ability to rapidly respond at, the, at a remote from the site of crisis and the capacity to recruit anonymous crowd to take part in the production of information are both the strengths and the Achilles heel of these operations, their point of weakness. The point I want to stress out here is that these technological applications signal an ever more sophisticated and professionalized field based on advanced technological hardware, and software and expertise. All this exposes a certain friction between human rights as a legal professional organization and human rights as a movement of people who can independently use the tools and idioms it provides to talk back to oppressive regimes. The question is, how can we develop, tweak and hack digital technologies and networks to strengthen human rights as a broad and decentralized movement of people? Do-it-yourself techniques, such as balloon and kite aerial photography, are imbricated in this technolo technologically advanced present in which data is the currency, in which victims and witnesses become decoders or data components. We might want to ask ourselves how to develop a toolbox that holds a bit less authority and greater interest in modes of truth-making that are situated, that are embodied, relational, effective and not only effective, that would allow us to develop a certain kind of truth and truth-making practices that bring people together in its processes of making. Let's explore this uh, toolbox through two, three cases of producing aerial testimonies in Israel-Palestine. The first and uh, most recent project uh, took shape in the Bedouin village of Al-Arakib in the Negev Desert, the Nakab in, Ara in Arabic, in the southern region of Israel. There are more than uh, 40 Bedouin villages in the Negev Desert that Israel refuses uh, to legally recognize. About 85,000 people reside in such villages and make half of the population of the Bedouin citizens in Israel. And these villages lack basic infrastructure such as electricity and water and are under constant threat of demolition. Al-Rakib was destroyed more than 130 times since 2010 by the Israeli authorities. And despite the ongoing attempts to expel the, these people from the land over which they claim ownership and urbanize them in townships, a few resilient families stay put and reconstruct their shacks after each demolition, demanding that the state would acknowledge their indigenous rights over these lands and becoming a symbol of the Palestinian struggle for the right of return. The families who stay put on their lands in Al-Rakib 
live in the area of the cemetery, which is the only structure that wasn't demolished by the Israeli authorities. This is how it is seen in publicly available satellite imagery. This is a Google satellite image, um, and Google complies to agreements between Israel and the U.S. to limit resolution of publicly available satellite imagery to a maximum of two and a half meters per pixel. And this is the do-it-yourself aerial photo photograph of the same area. In contrast to the Google image uh, we just saw, this do-it-yourself image presents a resolution of five centimeters per pixel, so the difference is between two and a half meter per pixels and five centimeters per pixel. And this image was stitched with Public Lab uh, MapNator in one of our first sessions in Al-Arakib. In this close-up, you can see more clearly how dense and detailed this image can get, so much as you can count the number and the type of stones that mark the graves. This work in al Arkib was conducted in the framework of the Ground Truth Project in which I took part and was led by Israeli organizations Zohrot and the London-based agency Forensic Architecture. We worked together uh, with the Bedouin activists in creating such aerial images during six or seven um, mapping sessions um, over the course of a year, covering about five and a half square kilometers of land. We created the images collaboratively. Some of the sessions were accompanied by the children of Al Arakib, who could contribute their skills in, uh, also in, in kite flying. And most sessions were conducted with the leading Bedouin activists. We walked together through their lands while the camera was taking pictures above us, um, documenting oral testimonies related to the places we walked through. For the Bedouin activists, the possibility to independently create their own aerial photography was particularly relevant, given their deep knowledge of the landscape and the extensive use they, they and their lawyers make of maps and aerials to corroborate oral testimonies of their historical sedentary presence in these lands. So satellite and aerial uh, images are not only costly and copyrighted, they are also not available publicly in the resolution needed to visualize Bedouin claims. In official maps, these villages are not marked or labeled because of their legal status, which keeps these settlements completely off the map, literally and politically. The aim of the Ground Truth Project was to bring together oral, aerial, visual and archival documentation and create a multi-dimensional testimony to Bedouin sedentary presence on these lands. And what you see here is a composite of the whole area we covered with the aerial photography overlaid on historical aerial photograph that was captured by the Royal Air Force in 1945 in their survey of Palestine. The high quality, low uh, altitude images we created enabled Ariel Kane, a researcher in forensic architecture, to create three-dimensional model of the lands of Al-Arakib that visualized houses, wells, cisterns, caves uh, used in the Bedouin everyday life that are otherwise invisible in aerials and maps. And superimposing the high-resolution kite imagery with the uh, RAF layer, the historic layer, 
allows to corroborate evidence to the historical existence of, this of these structures that trace back to the times of the British mandate in Palestine. And for learning more about this project and the issue, um, in more details, you can go to the website, thenakab.org. So second uh, use case is in Jerusalem, in the southeastern Palestinian neighborhood called Beit Safafa. This is one case that exemplifies the systemic discriminatory urban planning directed towards the Palestinian residents of Jerusalem. It concerns the construction of a highway, the most southern section of the six-lane highway that crosses Jerusalem from north to south, called Road 50, also known as Begging Road. And this section cuts through the neighborhood in such a way that severely damages the quality of life of its residents and contributes to the weakening of the Palestinian community in Jerusalem. An aerial photography of that section of the highways was created in collaboration with Palestinian and Israeli activists during the times of the protest that erupted with the construction, with the start of the construction. And um, we, we created the, the aerial during a few mapping sessions and from different points along the construction site that was completely blocked off uh, from the streets by high fences. This is the full image. Uh, that you can see, um, in which you can see the construction site of the highway that crosses the image horizontally. A leading figure in the struggle co-created this image and printed it in large format to present it uh, in his advocacy efforts. He used the image while presenting the issue to reporters, politicians, other officials, supporters who came to the site, and others. In contrast to the abstract maps that measured and illustrated the various concerning issues that the road created, the high-quality, uh, low-altitude image that was captured in near real-time stood as a powerful testimony, an affect-intensive testimony, to the brutal intervention of that megastructure within that fabric of everyday life. The third uh, story is in the Palestinian neighborhood of Silwan, in East Jerusalem. Silwan is located at the heart of, a political, of political violence in Jerusalem, right beside the walls of the old city, in a highly militarized space, and where land grabs, home expropriation, and even, and even demolitions are um, an everyday threat to the community. It was actually our first experiment uh, with do-it-yourself aerial photography in Jerusalem back in 2011. I worked together with Jeffrey Warren and Chaim Frati and in collaboration with the Palestinian activists in the community, uh, in a community educational center in Silwan. And together we conducted a workshop for a group of children ages 8 to 12. Um, so raising a camera tethered to a kite in a politically sensitive space such as Silwan was an activity that could easily raise the suspicion of army and police that are constantly present in the, in the streets and could have led to arrests of uh, local activists. The Palestinian activists we worked with decided they are willing to take the risk and considering that we had nothing to hide, uh, we went ahead and did it. We created an aerial photograph um, an aerial photograph of the neighborhood using a camera tethered to, to a kite. And after capturing the aerial images, the children stitched, stitched the images themselves using uh, Public Lab's map knitter. 
And they did it very intuitively. Um, they, inter they interpreted the images, they, they found their correct location on a map and warped them in order to correct lens, correction, lens distortions uh, using the software tools and created uh, a larger uh, image of the area. Later, they annotated the aerial image with their personal stories and photos. So a recurring element in the children's annotation was the constant presence of the military and police and the constant feeling of being watched and observed. They tagged point in, points in their streets uh, where Israeli security forces, CCTV cameras and private armed guards are present constantly. You can say that the children became their own community satellites uh, by producing an aerial testimony that tells their story of living in the heart of a religious and political conflict. Um, and in that sense, they were watching back and exposing a surveillance machine they are forced to live in, live with uh, in their everyday life. So these three stories convey the distinctive politics of do-it-yourself aerial testimonies. And the act of collaborative mapping with local activists, including children and women, worked against a high threshold of participation that tends to prevent those who are um, affected from meaningfully contributing to the production and interpretation of aerial testimonies. It does so through a material engagement with technology, a deep hands-on engagement in building and uh, manipulating hardware. The images you have seen bring forth an objective techno-scientific evidence without eliminating the human body and the subjective experience that is always tied to the processes of truth-making. This allows for a certain process of politicization in the production of testimonies that other uses of aerial and satellite imagery uh, do not seem to cross. Maybe the bottle rig for aerial photography is democratizing the view from above, like the pocket camera disseminated uh, and politicized the use of photography. And witnessing when it comes to do-it-yourself aerial photography is not a technical act, a distant technical act based on advanced technologies and expert analysis, but a way of seeing which is mediated by a camera tethered to a kite and people who stand on the ground in the midst of issues that concern them. For the remaining part of my talk, I want to share with you a completely different aerial testimony and take you for a tour in Jerusalem, tour of the wall. Not the separation wall, not the wailing wall or the walls of the old city, but an invisible wall that lies far beneath our consciousness. I'm talking about a geofence, a digital fence that is meant to ban drones from flying above the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So the Temple Mount is a compound within the old city of Jerusalem, and it includes some of the holiest sites for Jews and Muslims around the world. In the middle of, in the middle of it sits the Dome of the Rock, the most ancient Muslim structure, with a famous golden dome that you can see right in the center of this image. 
This work was originally, originally prepared for the Mekudeshet Art Festival in Jerusalem and I created it together with Barak Brinker, a drone operator and VR specialist. Together we were looking to visualize the material presence of this invisible wall from within the space of the city. It is a segment uh, of a three-part video installation that explored the wall from different angles. And what you see here in, in this video is our attempt to make this digital and yet very, very much material wall uh, tangible and seen by basically crushing into it um, with a drone and then sliding against it to draw the invisible contour of this fence. So the majority of drones in the drone technology uh, market, and in Israel specifically, are distributed by um, the Chinese manufacturer DJI. They are based on closed flying systems that embed the geographic in, uh, coordinates of regulatory no-fly zones. And as a result, these drones are barred from entering certain areas, or they cannot take off within these areas. Now, no-fly zones in big cities around the world have become a common regu regulatory uh, measure to prevent drones from flying above airports, stadiums, and security facilities. Um, first and foremost, because of flight security issues to avoid risks of aerial collision and uh, damages to property and people. In Jerusalem, there are a few no-fly zones. As you can see in this map, DJI provides that shows all the no-fly zones in the world, around the world. Um, and in this um, map of Jerusalem, you can see two small circles, red circles, which, which um, are marking no-fly zones above the Israeli parliament and above uh, the main city's, um, the city's main sports stadium. The big, the big red circle that you see there is the restricted zone that has the Temple Mount at its center. It is three kilometer in diameter, um, which is huge. And the compound is maybe 2% of the band area. It covers all of the compound, all of the old city, and goes way out to large parts of the Israeli and Palestinian residential areas that surround it. Just to illustrate the scale, here is the same area superimposed on the map of Berlin, on the local temple, the Tempelhof. And as you can see, this, this um, area is even bigger than the Tempelhof. Um, so how does it work? Why such a huge area in the heart of the city? Who decides for what purposes? I don't have answers to all these questions. Um, but what I can say is that the authority that decides on this geofence and manages it, including the authorization of flight permits, is not uh, the Civil uh, Aviation Administration, but the Israeli army and the police. Um, and that means it is a straightforward policing technology that serves Israel in giving a definitive yet muted or subtle answer regarding its sovereignty in Jerusalem. So let me try to explain this a little bit. Um, the Temple Mount is controlled by Israel since 1967. 
And after the 67 war, um, Israel took under its sovereignty the territory of East Jerusalem, including the old city, which was under Jordanian rule. And this act of declaring full sovereignty was breaching international law um, that treats these lands as disputed and occupied territories. So the status of Jerusalem is until this day considered by many countries, including the European Union, unresolved. While Israel controls this territory, the Temple Mount is administered by Jerusalem and the, the Jerusalem Islamic Waqf, a religious trust that has been in charge of the Islamic structures in Jerusalem's old city for hundreds of years. And the status quo between the Islamic Waqf and the Israeli authorities regarding the management, the control and access to the holy sites makes the Temple Mount the most political politically sensitive site in the region. As an example, two years ago, Israel positioned metal detectors at the entrance to the, to the Temple Mount and, and was forced to remove them very fast after it uh, resulted in a wave of protests by Palestinians from Jerusalem to the West Bank and, and Gaza, resulting in a few dead people and uh, many casualties. And what strikes me the most in this digital wall in the heart of Jerusalem is that this wall uh, do not only signal the contested issue of sovereignty in Jerusalem, it also gives rise to what we can call a techno-theological issue um, in which state law, religious tradition, both Jewish and Islamic, and corporate power intermingle in a strange manner. In 1967, when Israel got control over the old city, East Jerusalem, and the rest of the occupied uh, territories, there was a consensus among the rabbis of different streams in Judaism that the, in, that the entrance to the Temple Mount is forbidden for Jews due to the holiness of the place where the first and the second temple stood 2,000 years ago. In fact, rabbis also specify that the air above the site is holy as well. So the aerial geofence uh, enforces these religious instructions regarding access. But in recent years, as uh, religious nationalism in Israel has strengthened, right-wing activists and politicians have been challenging this consensus by entering the Temple Mount as a public act of reaffirming Israeli sovereignty in the old city and the holy sites. And these acts are very controversial and can um, easily erupt into violent situations. And so this digital fence is coded into the complexities of the political and religious conflict in the region. But things get more complex because not only the religious institutions and the state have a say in controlling the access to the sites, the Chinese have a say as well. When we began this journey, um, investigating this geofence, we made an attempt at requesting permission to fly in the area from DJI. We used the DJI protocol to filing our request to unlock the ban within the drone system. Shortly after, we received a reply that our unlocking request was approved. And we were invited to kindly follow the instructions below to unlock the flight restricted area. So it seems that global corporate power has its place in the ethno-national and religious matrix of control in Jerusalem. 
This raises many questions because considering the evasiveness of drones in the skies, one can assume that the Chinese have more control over the aerial space in this conflict-ridden zone than the state itself. So we have almost reached our 360 degrees tour around uh, the invisible wall of Jerusalem. And we also circled back to the beginning of this talk, um, to the no-fly zones in Gaza and uh, above the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and more broadly, to the question of who owns the skies. But in contrast to these uh, other cases, this drone testimony is not premised on the ability to bypass or breach the restriction, but rather on witnessing and acknowledging the existence of the closure itself. Making it visual and tangible is the first step to being able to question it, to discuss it, and critique these new forms of uh, control that are taking shape beneath our consciousness. So this aerial testimony is another iteration of prototyping a civic view from above in hopes that the question of who owns the skies will continue to be un undetermined at least for a few more hundred years. Thank you. Hello. So, uh, anybody of you has questions? Hands up, please. Nobody? Do I have to make an icebreaker question? Come on over here, please. Okay, thank you. Um, in how far these uh, pictures, these uh, uh, photo pictures, uh, help journalists to cover stories? You're asking me if... if the I mean, we, we, we saw now different examples uh, you presented, and um, it's part... Uh, your, or the work is partly work of activists, but journalists are not activists. So in how far did this work help uh, journalists to cover a story? Um, these images have been... Uh used by journalists um, in covering some cases, but the, the main m motivation to create these images was not uh, for journalism or, or, or for media um, uh, in most cases, but for legal um, courts um, uses and for uh, advocacy, advocacy efforts. Um, but yeah, it goes through different, um, different channels. Mm -hmm. Any more questions? Yeah, thank you very much for those insights. It's really impressing to me. And um, yeah, it's really great what you are doing with your team and your partners. So could you maybe share how you uh, did come up with the idea of uh, doing all those projects? And um, could you maybe share the beginning of your work? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I was born and, and grew up in Jerusalem, so I was very much uh, 
uh, immersed in the situation in, in the context of uh, um, political activism in Jerusalem specifically. And, uh, and my work was in the fields of uh, art and, uh, and activism. And I started uh, working with maps, with digital maps, because of the, specifically because spatial issues and geography and geographic information is such a, a sensitive um, and, you know, censored and copyrighted and controlled um, field in, in Israel-Palestine and, and contested. And maps se seem to be like a good way to, for storytelling. Um, so I started working with, uh, with um, um, in an art center with group of, groups of children, both in East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, um, using maps as tools for storytelling. And, and then I got, uh, got to know about, it was just after the, the British Petroleum oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and then I got to know this uh, group of people who created these aerial photographies, and I thought, wow, this is, uh, I really loved also the way that, I, th I thought that these images are very much um, moving and, and fascinating, and I thought that it would be, f it would be really interesting to see how these, this tool could be used in in the political context, in a, in the context of of, uh, of conflict over land and over uh, narratives, um, spatial narratives. So this is how it started, and it started with this project in Silwan that I showed earlier. Hi, um, thank you very much for your talk. It was very interesting. Um, I can imagine that a lot of the photography you well, put into the public is very controversial. Um, and have you ever experienced it backfiring on you that something you made public was then, I don't know, like, not destroyed, but that it backfired in some way? Because you do move in very controversial areas, I imagine. Thank you very much. Um, I, th I don't think it was... Um it it was controversial in 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 some ways uh but mostly um regarding um opening this data so for example mapnator is an is an open source um uh, software that allows you to create open data so you can choose how how you it's it's online so it's accessible online and you can choose uh how you open it and you can also copyright it but anyway it's online and that for example was a problem for some of the people I worked with that didn't want to uh, expose their, their spaces of living which were in the politically sensitive areas and, you know, uh, put online uh, near real-time images of, of the area. So these kinds of things. But then when you use uh, open technologies, you, can, you also have the ability and, and the community of practitioners that, that works with you even though they are not in Israel-Palestine uh, then you have the ability to change the technology in order to adapt to context, which was really uh, an amazing process. So we created, at that time, we created a, 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 a password, which was the first time that we created passwords for MapNitter for someone who does not want uh, the data to be exposed, so um, a password could be used. So, so these kinds of things, but... Um, but mostly, you know, in the process of the work rather than as a public issue that was debated. Hi. Um, Hi. How free or limited are you with taking aerial footage in Area C of the West Bank? Uh. Um, so, 
you're not free <laughs> to say it uh, short, but um, so drones are completely banned in Area C and all of the West Bank. Um, there is a military order that uh, uh, says that uh, even if you carry a drone, not even if you use it, if you carry a drone, if you um, use it, you, you might get three years in jail. And if you sell it, even five years. So it's, it's very much um, um, it's risky if you don't have authorization. And um, obviously, having the West Bank... Um, populated by mostly Palestinians, but a lot of uh, Jewish settlers, uh, also authorization is not uh, uh, an equal thing. So there's also inequality in who would get the authorization, who would be able to create these aerial images. Uh, but when we created aerial images with balloons and kites, we, we, didn't, we didn't seek for authorization. Uh, because of the, na the evasive nature of these images and that we thought we have the right to create aerial images uh, of the spaces of living of, of the people that we worked with. Hello. Um, first, I wanted to thank you for this um, amazing talk and super important work of documentation. And thank you. I wanted to raise a question. Um, in mapping, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the work has to do with a procedural and ongoing mapping to, uh, to note if a change is taking place. How would you say, what would you say are the difficulties or the potentials in ongoing mapping within these zones of conflict? Um, um, I think, it's, I think um, ongoing projects in general are very difficult to sustain. I don't know about the mapping, because actually, uh, for example, in the Negev desert, um, the Bedouins are, are activists there, they're, all, they're there all the time, they're documenting all the time. So, like, information for the nakab.org um, um, website can be keep, kept on, added, added all the time. So, um, but... But I think that the, the trouble of most of these, uh, these projects is first that they require um, collaboration between um, activists like me or researchers and local communities. And to sustain such project for a longer time is, is the trouble. But I think that in Israel-Palestine there are amazing organizations that are working, such as the organization Binkom, who is an um, organization of planners and architects for planning rights. And they've been doing um, mapping work for years on and on um, with the same communities, developing their mapping tools and their techniques and their, um, you know, um, their reason for mapping. Um, so that would be probably a good example for how how such mapping processes could be sustained. And I think it really depends on strong infrastructures, such as a non-profit that works in a certain areas for, for you know, a long term. Any more questions? Thank you very much. I close Thank the you. talk. Great applause, please. Thank you. We'll be right